I hope you're still in Jonah chapter number two. Uh, Jonah chapter number two, we're making some good progress as we go through this beloved Old Testament book and seeing uh, specifically, as we've subtitled this series, the mercy that never stops. And in particular this morning, we find ourselves in perhaps the most memorable or perhaps the most famous part of the story of Jonah as he is in the belly of some great fish. Up to this point, after Jonah has run as far and as fast as he could away from the call of God, away from the presence of the Lord, what happened? All of that running just blew up in his face. His escape plan, his to no one's surprise, just totally got ruined, got totally dismantled by God himself. As your event after event in that first chapter, as we covered, uh, seemed to not go according to plan. He finds a ship, yes, that is going to the end of the world. But immediately it gets bogged down by a storm. And immediately he's found out to be some sort of fugitive of God himself. And suddenly this results in him getting hurled over the side of a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean. In the middle of a monsoon. This is Jonah. As we come here to chapter number 2. And by every conceivable measure... Jonah has just completely wasted and squandered the opportunity that God called him to fulfill. The opportunity to be his prophet to the people of Nineveh. In a way, to put it somewhat bluntly, Jonah has just taken the call of God on his life and just flushed it down the drain. He has punted on what God has called him to do. And for all of his running, what has that gotten him? Nothing and nowhere except for a three-night stay in the belly of some great fish. That's it. That's all he's gotten from it. Nothing else, really. No amount of success or anything. And this is exactly, this particular moment, Jonah in the stomach of this fish, is where skeptics and critics love to descend from their ivory towers and try to invalidate this story, this book of Jonah. At least they try. Chapter number two is often referred to as the Psalm of Jonah. Jonah. Perhaps because so many of its images and allusions refer back to the Psalms. And in fact, in, uh, in these verses, 2 through 9, there's some upwards of seven references back to the Psalms. But it raises a number of questions, this Psalm does. Not the least of which is just the fact that we've repeated uh, already this morning. That this prayer of Jonah is supposedly being prayed by Jonah as he's swimming in the gastric juices of some belly of some fish. And that's a strange fact. And indeed, a lot of investigation has happened. A lot of investigative work has been done in an attempt to identify what type of sea creature, fish or whale, what have you, could have swallowed a grown man whole. Marine, bio- marine biologists, in fact, have examined everything from um, uh, the circumference of the esophagus of various fish to studying the digestive processes of whales or other large fish to determine if this is even feasible. And for decades, Christians, 
the church have likewise. They've been swept up by that sort of scientific and biological frenzy of trying to prove that this type of event could still happen today. The church over the centuries has exhibited this nagging tendency, at least in my mind, in my opinion, to latch on to sort of every story that corroborates what the Bible says as if what we believe as the church of God is based on scientific or archaeological discovery, which it's not. It's based on what God's word says, but the point remains that we still get distracted, I would say, by that. In fact, a recent story. Did you see this? Back in 2021, a man, a lobster diver, was swallowed by a humpback whale off the coast of Cape Cod. It lasted for all of 30 seconds. And he got a number of injuries, but he was swallowed by a humpback whale diving for lobsters before, after 30 seconds, he was belched back up and taken to the hospital. Not exactly a Jonah story, but it makes our minds work, right? At least it's feasible. If that doesn't do it for you, there was an even more famous story, perhaps the most famous story of all that has occurred since the time of Jonah till now, was this widely circulated story from 1891 that claimed uh, that a whaler in the midst of the English Channel was swallowed by a sperm whale. And he was there in the belly of that whale for hours until finally that whale was caught and dissected. And lo and behold, that sailor, as the story goes, was found alive, unconscious but alive, with skin bleached white from the acid in the whale's stomach. The story... I did a deep dive on this because I just found it so fascinating. It originally appeared in a newspaper in in 1891 before being um, sort of picked up by the New York Times in 1896. And this story serves as a very, very common, very, very influential, so to speak, sermon illustration for anyone preaching on Jonah. And in fact, you can scour all kinds of sermons. I'll say dozens of sermons and commentaries throughout the 1900s that utilize the story as a way to add credence to what is occurring in the story of Jonah, a man being swallowed by a fish. It would make sense, right? There's a person, at least in their time frame, that also had the same thing happen to them. The only problem is, there's nothing true about that story from 1891. Never happened. The man who supposedly was swallowed, the the whaler, the sailor who uh, fell overboard, a man named James Bartley, was never even on board the ship that he supposedly fell overboard from. Putting us right back again to square one where we have a story that has a seemingly insurmountable detail in it. A man being swallowed by fish that has to be taken by faith. No, we may not find real life evidence for what this story tells us. But does that make it any less true? No, it does not. Because it is God's word. And I think sometimes the church... We can get so distracted identifying the fish and proving the story true by parading exhibits A through Z to prove the skeptics wrong and to prove the doubters wrong. When in reality, what does that do? I think what it does is just miss the point of the story in the first place. 
Because calling the story, the story of Jonah and the whale, as we often do, I think is somewhat flawed. Mainly because I think it, it sort of falls short of helping us see something of Jonah in ourselves. You see, I'd wager, I'm not a betting man, but I would wager that we have all been where Jonah was at some point in our lives, not in the belly of a fish. But we have, I would wager, we have been in a place where God seemed impossibly far away from us. And all we could do was cry. All we could do was just belt out what was deepest and darkest on the inside of us. All we could do was just wail and weep because it doesn't even feel like God can hear us. It doesn't even feel like God can see us. It doesn't even feel like God cares at all. That's Jonah right here. He feels impossibly far from God, hopelessly abandoned and closed off from everything and everyone. He's drowning, yes, literally, but also figuratively drowning in sorrow and despair and perhaps guilt. He's at rock bottom. That's Jonah here in chapter number two. But I would say what I want to show you this morning, that's actually a good thing. That's actually a good thing that Jonah experiences rock bottom because that's usually when we've hit the bottom, when we've hit the lowest point we could possibly go and we have no other place else to turn, that's usually where God shows up. That's usually where God finds us. He shows up when we're at our worst In order to usher us back to his side. In order to lead us to repentance and rescue us and reclaim us as his own. That's what I think the psalm of Jonah is about. In the midst of this runaway prophet's desperate prayer. We're given a glimpse of what it looks like to repent. What does that mean to repent? You might have heard the illustration that it's a complete turning around. And that's definitely true. One of my favorite church theologians, of course, Martin Luther, is famous for saying in the very first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in 1517, this, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. What does that mean, though? What does it look like for the life of a Christian, for the life of a Christian to be a life of repentance? Well, I think it means three things that I think are clearly displayed for us right here in the Psalm of Jonah. Number one, I think repentance means, first of all, getting low. Repentance means getting low. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go back to chapter number one, there's a really curious, but I think fascinating sort of grammatical clue, so to speak, that I think serves to show us Jonah's disobedience. Beginning in chapter one, look at verse three. Notice what it says. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And notice, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it 
to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa. Notice verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out as the storm hurled about them. They cried out to their God and they hurled the cargo that was, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, notice, had gotten down into the inner part of the ship. And now, look at verse 2 of chapter 2 of Jonah. I called out To the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows, they passed over me. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. And now he's going down into the pit, into the deep, into the belly of a fish. It's no coincidence, I think, that each of Jonah's decisions... Each time Jonah makes a decision to flee and run from what God wanted him to do, it leads him on a progressively downward path. It doesn't end well. It always always is leading him downward and down and down he goes until he gets to where he is in chapter number 2, as we've just read, into a place that he calls the belly of Sheol, which is a very vivid phrase. In its most basic form, Sheol is just a Hebrew term that means the grave or the place of the dead. It's a place of no return. When you go to Sheol, you don't come back from it. And whether Jonah was considering this place to be a literal place or just a figure of speech, it doesn't really matter because he's just being figurative. He's being metaphorical because Jonah hadn't literally been transported to the place of the dead, but he might as well have, at least in his mind, He's in a stomach of some unknown sea creature. At at a moment, he was treading water. He was drowning. And then in a next moment, he was in the belly of a fish. (laughs) He has come, perhaps, the closest to death anyone could possibly get without actually dying. And as he's sinking... Sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and as he says, into the heart of the sea, inside that stomach of whatever fish that was, as he's descending there to the lowest place possible, with darkness seemingly getting darker and closing in around him, that's when he comes to his senses. Right there. He realizes that this whole thing, this whole descent... This whole downward trajectory with things blowing up in his face. It's all his fault. That's what Jonah realizes in the belly of that fish. That this whole fiasco, it's on him. Look at verse 3 again. Notice his language. For you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas. And the floods surrounded me. And all your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. He understands. You notice? That what he's going through is not just an accidental thing. It's not just something that has happened. It is coming from God himself. Because he ran from God himself. 
The hands of the Lord were in it all and behind it all. The waves were his, the fish was God's, and just as much as Jonah's life belonged to the Lord. You see, what's occurring here, I think, most clearly is that this descent of Jonah into the deep, into the heart of the sea, into a place impossibly far from the Lord was actually God's way of bringing Jonah to the lowest place imaginable in order that he might recognize that this whole mess is Jonah's problem. This whole thing is self-made. This whole thing, I think, was... A way to get Jonah to see that it's his doing. When he ran from the Lord, he wasn't merely choosing to just go another way. He was choosing his own exile. Did you notice that in verse 4 as he says, I am driven away. It's a word that literally means exile or abandonment. When he fled from God's presence, it's as if he was choosing to expel himself from the sight of God. He was choosing to abandon his hope and his first love, namely the Lord himself. That's what verse 8 means. Look at verse 8 where he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You see what he's saying there? Those who choose... To pay homage, to pay regard, to give attention to vain idols, empty idols, empty gods of their own making. They're not just choosing to worship something else. They're choosing to worship something else in place of their one hope of steadfast love and mercy and grace. And that is exactly what Jonah is now realizing that he's done. He's not just gone another way. He has abandoned God himself. But leave it to God. To do something about that. Because God loved Jonah so much. That instead of just letting him go. And keep going further. And keep going further. He stops him in his tracks. That's what God does. He stops him in his tracks and swallows him by a fish and tells Jonah, hey, just stop for a second. That's what God has to do, is it not? Sometimes God has to put us flat on our backs in order for us to see the mess that we've made of our own lives. Because that's what occurs. It's only when we get to rock bottom that I think that we are finally able to see that the guilty party is us. It's only, one person said it like this, it's only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you're finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. That's what Jonah is learning right here in this moment. Yeah, he's in the stomach of a fish. He's been put flat on his back by God. You see, lying flat on our backs lets us see our failures and our shortcomings most clearly. That's when we often get the best view of ourselves and we're finally able to see, man, look at how far I've ran. Look at how far I've fallen. But that's the good news, did you see? Because when we're flat on our backs, that's often when we get the, get the best view of who God is too. Because that's who God is. 
The God of the Bible is a God of the depths. A God of the deep and dark places of life. He's a God of those who've bottomed out. He's a God who comes to the side. Who is unafraid and unashamed of joining us in the pit in order to pull us out of it again. Indeed, there is no place so low that God is not there. And even for Jonah, God shows up. It reminds me of Psalm 139, those very famous words. Write that reference down. Psalm 139, 7 says what? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall come over me, and the light be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And in a way, you could apply those same words to Jonah. It doesn't matter how far he had fallen. As low as you and I may sink, grace goes even lower. And it finds us right there when we're flat on our backs and we realize that we've done it. You see, the first step in the process of repentance is getting low enough to see that we're the culprit. That we're the ones who've done it. And that's a hard thing to learn. It's a painful process sometimes, is it not? Repentance means getting low. But secondly, I want you to see also that repentance means giving up. Repentance means giving up. And I don't mean that in sort of a hopeless way. Actually, I think that's the first step towards true hope itself. Because as Jonah is sinking like a stone into the heart of the sea, he's made to realize that other harsh reality. Not only did he do it, but also he can't fix it. This whole predicament, this whole fiasco is a result of his own disobedience and rebellion. When he got the call, he chose, consciously chose to make a decision to turn away from God and not follow him, not follow his leading. Therefore, it's a predicament that he realizes here. That he cannot put back together in and of himself. And he describes that sinking feeling uh, that overtook him in this very vivid detail. Again, look at verse 3. Where he says, for you, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. And the floods surrounded me. And all your waves and your billows, they passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet again, shall I look upon your holy temple? The waters, they closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's sinking lower and lower. He's surrounded, as he says multiple times. He is being enveloped by the flood, by the deep. That whole thing was closing in around him. All those watery depths were closing in on him. And he was sure that he was as good as dead. But even as those waves threatened to swallow Jonah whole, as we know the story, something else swallows Jonah instead. 
And that's where that fish's stomach, as he sort of hints at there, becomes this prison from which there is no escaping. As he says, the bars closed upon me forever. When the jaws of that great fish closed around Jonah, it was as if the gates of death had closed on his life for good. And now he's in a prison he can't get out of, in a place that feels impossibly far from God, in a place that often has no return. And that's where he finally, I think, realizes how hopeless and helpless he truly was. You see, this is where Jonah gives up. Because I think he realizes, Jonah does, that this fish is an unmistakable gift of what we could call God's violent mercy. You see, before he was drowning, he was barely treading water. And in fact, he probably would have drowned to death if it weren't for the fact that the fish actually saves him. See, the fish was, yes, partly a punishment, but also it was a gift of mercy. Violent mercy. But mercy nonetheless, instead of being swallowed and consumed by the water, he now has a place where he has been consumed by the violent mercy of God. Where does that come from? Paul Tripp, one of my favorite writers, he says this, quote, In love, God has worked to dent and deface my glory so that his glory would be my delight. He has plundered my kingdom so that his kingdom would be my joy. And he has crushed my crown under his feet so that I would quest to be a good ambassador and not to crave, not crave to be a king. In this violent mercy... There is hope for every person. Indeed, I think that's what God has done for Jonah, and that's what he does for all of us. When we get too big for our britches, and we want to make ourselves kings of our own kingdoms, and crown ourselves with the feats of our own accomplishments, what usually occurs? What usually happens? That's when those crowns are ingloriously thrust off of our heads. Where our glory is dented and defaced as usually our life blows up in our face. And it's usually because God is treating us with mercy, with mercy, violent mercy, yes. It's getting us to realize what? He's putting us flat on our backs to remind us that our mess is not fixable by us. That's part of what it means to repent in the first place. Is seeing that we are the problem, yes, but the problem can't be remedied or, or resolved by anything that we do. And this is a painful, very frustrating thing to be told, is it not? You're probably offended even right now to the idea that you can't fix your biggest problem. We are so resistant to that idea. We are so uh, annoyed by that idea that we can't fix what's wrong with us. It goes against our nature. The natural bent of the human heart is bent towards what? Being our own saviors. We can get ourselves out of this mess. We can make ourselves better. We can clean our own act up. We can make ourselves into a place where we are receiving the favor of God. But you see, what makes bottoming out so much, so much worse is when we are so stubborn and insist that we be our own rescuer. This makes about as much sense as a person who doesn't know how to swim, thinking that they can swim themselves to safety. 
I've used this illustration before, but it's, it's so true for this moment. When a Coast Guard swim diver, swim rescuer, is attempting to rescue someone from drowning, uh, what do they often have to do? They often have to force the person from drowning to stop thrashing about. Or else that risks putting the one drowning and the rescue diver at risk of losing both their lives. The first step in that rescue diver's mission is to actually make it to where that drowning person actually can't move at all. Just give up and give in to the rescue you're receiving. It's only when they give up that the rescuer can actually bring them to safety. And the same is true for you and me. Sometimes God allows us to hit rock bottom. To bottom out. And sometimes it feels as if he's keeping us there. And it's not because he likes to see us suffer. It's not because he likes to see us struggle. It's because he wants us to see that we have no other hope until our only hope is him. He wants us to stop thrashing. He wants us to stop trying to pull this, that, and the other thing to say that, look at what we, see, I can save myself. He wants us to give up. Sometimes this means that God has to employ some violent mercy in order for us to stop running, to stop resisting. And for Jonah, that meant being swallowed by a fish. Talk about being told to give up in a very distinct way. For you and for me, it probably looks different. Maybe it means losing something or someone of great value to you. Maybe it means seeing your plans just totally go up in smoke. Maybe it seems it looks like God closed door after door after door instead of opening them. And as you watch all of that unfold and you're just feeling so hopeless and you're feeling so helpless, I think in fact sometimes you're getting a glimpse of the violent mercy of God which paves the way for our rescue. Because when God closes a door, you know what he's often wanting us to see? Sometimes he doesn't open a window. Sometimes he just wants us to be in the room that we're in. Why? So that we learn more about him. Again, I can tell you this. Suffering and anguish and heartache is not learning about us. It's learning about God. We learn more about who God is through the face of suffering than any other form. He's wanting you to see That when you bottom out, when you come to the end of yourself, that's where he is. That's where he shows up. That's where the hope of God comes and visits us. Repentance means getting low. Repentance means giving up. But lastly, number three, repentance means getting help. Because when God puts us flat on our backs... It's not because he's angry at us. It's because he loves us. God is eager for us to repent. You could go from this point. You could go to any other prophet. Especially the prophet Jeremiah. And when they preach repentance. What are they preaching? They're preaching that actually there is a God. Who is waiting to embrace them. 
There's a God who is just waiting and desirous that the people of God would turn back to them. Jeremiah says this over and over and over again. That the people of Judah, they had turned on God so many times. Over and over again. They had rebelled against God. They had disobeyed God. And what was the message of Jeremiah? That there is a God waiting to forgive you. He aims for us, God does, to see not only that we've done it, not only can we not fix it, but there is only one who can fix it. As Jonah is swallowed by the waves and by this whale, his gaze, I love how twice, his gaze is driven back to a very specific place, the temple of the Lord. Did you notice that? Look at verse 4. He says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I don't think it's any coincidence that he mentions this temple on two separate occasions in this prayer. He is at his wit's end. He is at his limits. And he's praying desperately. He's praying, and I imagine he's just praying through tears. And he remembers a specific place. He remembers the temple. What was the temple a representation of? What did the temple symbolize? It symbolized the atoning presence of Yahweh. If you want to look at that, go to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is that moment when Solomon, after having constructed that same temple, is dedicating the temple. And in the midst of his prayer, what do we learn about the temple? It is a place of the incalculable presence of God that comes down to atone for his people's sins. That's why that place was there. It was a monument to the fact that the great God of the universe that had covenanted with God's people had also covenanted to cover his people's sins. You see, then therefore, when Jonah is looking back to the holy temple of God Almighty, what is he doing? He's looking and he's remembering, he's recalling, and in his mind's eye, he's looking back to that place where he knows, the only place that he knows where his sins can be taken care of. The place where forgiveness is. The place where help is. You see, this is Jonah when he's looking to the holy temple. It's as if he's flat on his back and he's looking and reaching out for help. Because that's where he knows his only help was going to be found. And that place where priest after priest would take lamb after lamb and slit their throats and cover the altar in blood as a symbol of what? As the symbol of the blood that would cover their sins. Jonah, looking to the temple, is looking to his only hope. And as he looks, he's remembering. And as he's remembering, he's praying. And as he's praying, God hears him. Look at verse 1. I love this, that Jonah is praying to the Lord God. Lord, notice, his God. From the belly of the fish. And what is he praying? I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Out of my deepest, darkest despair. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol. And the place of no return. I cried unto God. And he heard my voice. 
See, the most amazing part of this whole scene is not the fact that Jonah is in some belly of some great fish. It's the fact that God hears him even there. That even when he has sung to a place so low where God can barely even, where he feels as if God can barely even hear him, let alone see him, God hears his cries. See, the truth of all truths, I think, that to we who are enduring suffering, even suffering of our own making, and we cry out to God in desperation. God is never deaf. He never turns a deaf ear to the cries of those who are desperate. Hear's ear is always attuned and always alert to what hears us. No matter how deep you've sunk or how far away you have strayed, God always hears you. Always. Psalm 34. Listen to this. Another psalm of David that speaks exactly to what Jonah is enduring here. Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And verse 17 of the same psalm. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's who our God is. Because not only does he hear, but he helps Jonah. He takes action. God heard Jonah's desperate, quivering prayer. And in another example of his merciful control over all things, what occurs? Well, verse 6, as Jonah testifies, he brought his life up from the pit, which is just a way of saying what he says in verse 10, that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. From the belly of Sheol, from the very pit of hell and death, Jonah is, we could say, raised up, or we could perhaps term it, he was resurrected. And Jonah knows that he owes everything to the gracious word of the Lord. Because he says, verse 9, I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is what repentance looks like. The same guy who was running as as fast and as far as he could away from the presence of the Lord, is now expressing just incredible gratitude that God's presence has saved him. And nothing Jonah might have done or could have done could have ever resulted in his salvation. But he says salvation belongs to the Lord alone, which I think is a good way not only to understand this story, But to understand the rest of the whole Bible too. Your whole Bible. The whole story of these scriptures. All of its pages. You know what it is? It's a story of how God has put himself in the lowest of low places. In order that we might fall on our backs. And turn to him in repentance. That we might see him as our one and only hope. That's what he's striven to do. 
That if man sinks lower and lower into sin and despair and wretchedness and wickedness, God and his grace descends lower to say, you cannot get away from my goodness. You can't wiggle your way out of my goodness and grace. And as far as you go, I am going to go farther to pull you back out of it, to pull you up from the pit. See, that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When he comes... In Mark chapter 1, and he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching to the world, get low, give up, and get help. And I'm that one. I'm your help. The only help that matters. I don't know what you may be running from this morning. If you're running from anything at all. I don't know what you're... Pretending doesn't exist. That you have to go back to work to on Monday. The life you have to return to as you leave here from church in a few minutes. I don't know what stresses are on your mind right even this second. Whatever mess you've made of your life, I'm here to tell you that there is a God who is waiting for you. A God who doesn't judge He will judge ultimately, but here in this hour, he is not judging you. He is calling you to his side. And he's saying right even here to you that salvation belongs to me. Stop your running. Stop your resisting. Stop your thrashing. Just give in. Receive the rescue that is waiting for you. My friends, that's what we have in the good news of the gospel. Rescue that comes from the outside. Rescue that is outside of us. Rescue that descends to exactly where we are. My friends, make today the day of repentance. The day of getting the help you need. Of getting the only hope and the only help that matters. Let us pray.